Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you live from Washington, D.C., not doing my show from my bedroom for a week. <laughs> it was it was a great week. We had a wonderful time. We had a my daughter had a wonderful our daughter had a wonderful uh, uh, wedding. Um, it was great seeing old friends and whatnot. And uh, and it's nice being back in D.C. as well. Uh, although I love both these cities, I really do. Uh, the, the the president of the United States, while he's asserting it has nothing to do with race, is objecting to mostly people of color. There have been a few white allies, but mostly people of color um, going to one knee during the national anthem to protest essentially institutional racism in the United States. Specifically, I, as I recall, this all began with police killings of unarmed black men. And, uh, you know, and, and for that matter, I mean, the, I think it's the third verse of the Star Spangled Banner, you know, is a little racist, shall we say. Um, you can look it up, but, you know, it's, it's a reference to the, to the uh, slaves who, who, uh, went to, to fight on behalf of the British, as I recall. Um, but it's, uh, it's not the friendliest thing. But, but that said, you know, I'm not anti-star-spangled uh, banner or flag. Um, but what Trump is doing is, is and, and by the way, Trump is not alone in this. The media is all over this as well. And I realize I'm, I'm here, I'm part of the media, and here I am doing it. But I want, I, it's really important to say this because the rest of the media is not going to say this. And that is that, you know, he, he's basically just using the media to deflect from all the things that are going on right now. And I, I think one of the most important is that a U.S. territory filled with uh, 3 million U.S. citizens, Puerto Rico, is devastated from, uh, you know, a, a, a global warming amped up tropical storm or hurricane. 
And Trump would rather not talk about that. That's going to require money. It's going to require resources. We should be sending the Navy down there. We should be sending other parts of the military of the U.S. military that have the ability to to uh, land or to dock in Puerto Rico. This is part of the United States. It's the U.S. territory. The same with U.S. Virgin Islands, and they've been absolutely devastated. And I can't tell that Trump is doing anything. But you know, he doesn't want to talk about that. His spokespeople don't want to talk about that. His minions don't want to talk about that. This is classical, on the one hand, classic race baiting, classic, you know, the, you know this is Trump. He's, he's uh, essentially, you know, trash talking black players. I mean, that's, that's what it comes down to. For protesting institutional racism, how dare they? And uh, now, you know, t- Tom Brady is talking back to him. Uh, there's a, been at least one owner talking back to him. But as this, is, as this is going on, there's serious stuff happening in the world. I mean, Trump is about to, in all probability, have an epic fail in his most recent attempt to repeal Obamacare, which, by the way, is going to resume again after January 1st. But this, this, uh, this thing about you know, not standing for the Pledge of Allegiance, but instead of going down, instead going down on one knee. Arguably, that's, I would say, even more respectful. I mean, you know, the, the First Amendment of the Constitution protects our right to, to dissent, essentially. Our country was founded on dissent. And it was only in 2009 that sports teams started coming on the field for the, for the, for the national anthem. That was eight years ago. And they started doing it because the U.S. Pentagon, the Pentagon, was giving them hundreds of thousands of dollars. I saw one story that said that Roger Goodell, when he was running the NFL, you know, sent back 700 grand to the Pentagon and said, thanks, but no thanks. But this whole militarization, this whole hyping up of the military, this came out of George W. Bush lying us into a war in, you know, in, in Iraq and stupidly going into a war in Afghanistan when neither one were even remotely necessary. Uh, he did it for purely political purposes. And there were not enough warriors for the war. So, so the Bush administration had to start, you know, leaning on people. Hey, you know, it's a wonderful thing. Let's run ads with the movie theaters, you know, oh, be everything you can be. And uh, let's throw in some good bennies, you know, so if you go to in the military, you can, you can also get a college education, et cetera, et cetera. And and all of this, and oh, and, and let's, you know, let's be uh, praiseful of our military, let them board airplanes first, all that kind of stuff, you know, that, that comes along with uh, nationalism and militarism that comes along with being at war. It's not unusual. <clears throat> it's not even something that is necessarily in the abstract worthy of criticism. But Trump is behaving as if the teams coming out on the field and standing for the Pledge of Allegiance is something that goes back to Francis Scott Key or George Washington. And I'm sorry, it goes back to 2009 when the Pentagon started saying, we need more good, good press for the military so that, because we're, we're short on cannon fodder. I mean, that's what it came down to. 
And Trump is turning this thing into a, quote, cultural issue. Well, cultural issues, I mean, you know, historically, this is what the Republican Party does when they don't want to talk about what's really going on. What's really going on is Scott Pruitt, day by day, literally day by day, is devastating the Environmental Protection Agency. Chemical companies no longer seeing inspectors, big polluters not having to worry. The IRS, they're changing the policies now, so or at least they want to, so that if you, if you get an earned income tax credit, unless, in other words, if you make less than $25,000 a year, basically, and, and you get money back from the government, you automatically get audited, which is going to you know, suck up all the time of thousands of IRS auditors so that they won't be able to audit rich people. You've got Ryan Zinke taking, you know, national monuments like Bears Ears and others that are, that are, you know, not only national monuments, but in many cases, sacred places for Native Americans who have, who have reservations nearby and who have historically used this land. I mean, this is what this despicable thing that John McCain and Jeff Flake did with Apache Tears despicable. Flipping it for another piece of land and then selling it off to an Australian mining company. But this is what American politicians who take money from groups like Australian mining companies do. But there's serious stuff going on. Now, there's also serious stuff going on with regard. This is not to diminish what what Colin Kaepernick started here. It's not to say it's not serious at all. It, it is worthy of coverage, but the coverage is, in my mind, the wrong kind of coverage. I mean, the coverage should be, okay, look at all these athletes who are taking this position. Why? Why are they doing this? What kind of an America are they envisioning? What specifically about America or about Trump or about our policies are they, are they protesting? Have you heard any conversation, any kind of meaningful conversation about those kind of issues? By and large, not. Maybe on some of the wonkiest of the wonky weekend shows kind of things, but, and, and my apologies, I missed all of them. I was, you know, at a wedding all day Saturday and I was flying all day Sunday. I got home uh, late last night and fell into bed. And so I just kind of caught up this morning. But I'd be willing to bet that the vast majority of the coverage was not about why are these players doing this? What is it that provoked this? What is the history of this? Where are they going with this? See, I see these protests as the logical extension. This is nonviolent, passive, disruptive protest. This is what Martin Luther King was doing in the 60s and before. This is what the this is this is what the civil rights movement has always done. It's what the women's rights movement did back, you know, prior to the 1920s. This is this is it's what Jesus did. You know, this is the highest calling to call out a social wrong in a way that doesn't disrupt society, that doesn't uh, you know, in other words, I mean they're not, it's not like, you know, they're 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 throwing tin cans into the stands or or, uh, you know, shooting off fireworks or something like that. And, and it's not the kind of intimidating disruptive that the right-wingers do when they show up at their so-called protests with their open carry guns, like we saw in, in Charlottesville, uh, uh, Virginia. I mean, that, that's a different kind of protest. And it's also, you know, allowed by the, 
by the First Amendment. But, but I mean, if you want protest that's worthy of critique or criticism, you know, how about the ones where the people show, oh, wait a minute, those are white people showing up with guns. I forgot. The last time a bunch of black people showed up with guns, it was Bobby Seale and his friends in California back in the 60s. And within weeks, Ronald Reagan had gun control laws in California. But, so, but white people showing up with guns, no problem. So number one, you know, this, there is a racial component to this. In fact, I'd say this is, this, it's at the core of the whole thing. And Trump's saying, oh, I never even mentioned race. Well, you don't have to mention race. There's lots, I mean, Lee Atwater taught us that, right? You don't want to say race, just say forced busing in the 60s. You don't want to say forced busing in the 60s. In the 80s, you say tax cuts. And as Lee Atwater said, everybody knows that's going to help the rich people and hurt the poor people, which is going to hurt the black, hurt the black people, right? This is all about race. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So your thoughts on this. We're going to check in with Trita Parsi a little later on in the program. And Professor Peter Wadhams, one of the leading climate scientists in the world, is going to be in the studio. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And just just some of the... um, some of the some of the stuff that has been um, some of the quotes and whatnot that have been going on ar- around this this thing uh, the the uh, oh, there's a great cartoon tune Kevin necessary of uh, lady Lady Liberty on her knee uh, here we have this is there's just this this long a collection of Twitter feeds. Uh, this was over Democratic Underground, actually. I think it was yeah, it was posted by Isimist, Isimist, and uh, you know, uh, uh, basketball players, football players, baseball players. I mean, you know, team owners. It's like this. People are standing up to to Trump, and uh, uh, Sean King retweeted uh, E. Raymond's tweet this morning which I thought was uh, real interesting. It was, in fact, liked by Colin Kaepernick. And it said, uh, thinking NFL players are protesting the flag is like thinking Rosa Parks was protesting public transportation. Just let that sink in for a minute. Thinking that NFL players are protesting the flag, in quotes, is like thinking Rosa Parks was protesting public transportation. And then E. Raymond says, despite the many post-game interviews of uh, Kaepernick, uh, where he brilliantly articulates his reasons for his actions. Folks have run off with their own false narratives, twisting it to be about patriotism and troops. It's got nothing to do with either one. As someone who's worn a police uniform for five days a week for over nine years and patrolled some of the toughest neighborhoods in this nation, it's from that vantage point that I confirm the systemic and cultural issues in law enforcement that Colin Kaepernick speaks of that they exist and they need to be rectified. I'm with Kaepernick, officers for Kaepernick. These are the hashtags. I'm with Cap, officers for Kaepernick, Justice League NYC, Kaepernick, and take a knee. And, uh, you know, good on you. Uh, it's, uh, but, so, anyhow, there's, but, but there's, there's a lot going on in this, and this, this, uh, this uh, healthcare bill and whatnot is not, not among the least of them. Um, but I think that the, 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 big, the big point here 
And, you know, I, I see a lot of you. Uh, there's a lot of calls. We'll pick them up after we come back from the break. Actually, from the break, we're going to talk to uh, Trita Parsi about Iran for a few minutes. But then after that, I'll pick up your phone calls and we'll we'll continue with this this topic. In a way, you know, it's a it is it is not a life and death issue. It's not like North Korea or people dying in Puerto Rico and the president's ignoring them. But on the other hand, it is a life and death issue. Uh, you're talking about the rights of people of color in this country to live their lives unmolested, to live their lives, you know, with with pride and with dignity and, and with the simple respect that comes uh, from seeing the humanity in all of us by all of us. And 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 once again, you know, I I I find myself saying, you know, this is a conversation. Uh, yeah, it's a conversation all of us need to have. But white people need to begin to own up to what Donald Trump is actually saying here, for example. And, and the, the deep level of ignorance associated with this, to the point where NASCAR owners, which is an entirely white sport, are saying, oh yeah, we'd fire anybody who did that. And then Dale Earnhardt Jr. says, oh no, it's a good thing. And welcome back. Trita Parsi is on the line with us. He's the founder and president of the National Iranian American Council, uh, NIAC, N-I-A-C. He's the author of several books. His most recent, Losing an Enemy, uh, a, a brilliant book uh, worth checking out. Uh, the website is niacouncil.org, N-I-A-Council.org. And uh, you can tweet him at T Parsi, T-P-A-R-S-I, as in Trita Parsi. Welcome to the program, or welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Thank you so much for having me again. You've got uh, uh, this uh, uh, brilliant piece that you wrote for The Guardian um, last Tuesday titled, Trump is conflating Pyongyang with uh, Tehran. The results could be catastrophic. Can you lay out that argument for us? Yes, I mean, what you saw Trump has been doing, and I, incidentally, I wrote this uh, more than, I think, a week before his latest tweet on this matter in which he was directly linking Iran and North Korea. And my argument was that he is deliberately conflating North Korea with Iran and Iran with North Korea uh, in order to be able to maximize the chances of going forward with these uh, very, very uh, hawkish arguments that he's presenting. And what you have right now is that on October 15th, that's the deadline for President Trump to certify that Iran is complying with the nuclear agreement. He has to certify it to Congress. Now, Iran is complying with the agreement. The IEA has already written eight reports confirming this. Trump is very angry that he has to certify that. But Trump also has the option of saying, yes, they are complying with the agreement, but we still think it's not in the U.S.'s national interest to continue to lift sanctions on Iran. If he does that, then he's giving Congress 60 days to reinstate sanctions on Iran. And if they do so, the U.S is in violation of the deal. The deal will potentially survive, but nevertheless, the US will have withdrawn from it. Uh, and that's a very dangerous scenario because the two key things that the deal achieved was that it took two very bad scenarios off the table. The scenario of Iran having an access to a nuclear bomb or a pathway to a nuclear bomb, and the scenario of the United States and Iran going to war with each other again. If you kill the deal, or if you withdraw from the deal, these two bad scenarios come back onto the table. And that's where we are right now. This may happen just in the next two, three weeks. Yeah. This uh, conflating uh, one with another 
what occurs to me is the parallel of Vietnam, um, which I remember well, uh, old fart that I am. And, and that was that um, Vietnam, North Vietnam going communist, uh, you know, this whole domino theory that the, the Soviet Union was, was expanding, Mao's, China was expanding, that we had to stop communism, um, blah, de, blah, de, blah, blah, and, 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 and therefore this was this existential battle. And, um, and it turned out to be, uh, you know, irrelevant, first of all, the whole domino theory was crazy. And, and then we used a lie, you know, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution to get into it. Is there any kind of an analogy there, or am I just uh, imagining something here? No, I mean, without a doubt, if you kill this deal, and then if you uh, conflate Iran and North Korea, and you, we see the escalation we're seeing with North Korea, it will definitely have spillover effects. And, and arguments will be started to be presented that you have to take out Iran in order to be able to be effective against North Korea, or you have to show the Iranians that you're serious by going nuclear against North Korea. It's a logic that has been used in many different places before, unfortunately has a certain degree of effectiveness with the American public. Uh, and uh, it's very clear that Trump is preparing the uh, ground for using arguments of this kind. Yeah, this is uh, very, very dangerous stuff. And then, and then meanwhile, uh, NIAC, your organization, has condemned the uh, Muslim ban 3.0. This is uh, in the news today. Uh, it's not entirely... Uh, the, the new countries that Trump is banning are not, uh, number one, they're not time limited. And number two, they're not Muslim majority countries are all, you know, several of them are not. Uh, Venezuela is largely Catholic, for example. Um, your thoughts on where he's going with this and what, what kind of uh, impact this has, both on the security of the United States internally and also on the perception of the United States around the world, which indirectly or directly, arguably, affects our security. It's a transparent uh, little gimmick to try to make sure that this ban does not come across as a Muslim ban because they understand that that would be unconstitutional by adding two countries, Venezuela and North Korea, that are not Muslim. Now, in the case of North Korea, really, we needed a ban. Their own government is banning them from coming here. So we don't have any immigration or non-immigrants coming in from North Korea to begin with. So this doesn't do anything. Uh, I think what this ban started off with was not a question of where is the threat and what do we need to do to minimize it? If that was the case, we would have had uh, not necessarily a national ban, but we would have measures that would be addressing the fact that there's so much radicalization taking place in Saudi Arabia and that so many of the victims of terror have come at the hands of groups that either have been funded trained or one way or another linked to the Wahhabi movements coming out of Saudi Arabia. But that is not the case here. We're not even addressing Saudi Arabia whatsoever. In fact, Trump is going to Saudi Arabia and he's hugging them to death and selling them $110 billion of weapons. Instead, what we've started off with is a question, who on this planet does the United States have bad relations with? Who could we get away with? imposing measures of this kind in order to appear tough, not in order to actually make the United States more secure. Because all that, this is quite superficial to target North Korea that doesn't even have anyone coming over here. Moreover, perhaps most importantly, the countries the United States have bad relations with is not necessarily the same countries whose citizenship may constitute a threat to the US. Iran is a KMC point. You have no examples of any Iranian national engaging in any lethal acts of terrorism on US soil. 
You have plenty, unfortunately, coming from Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Now, of course, the Iranians have a bad relationship the Iranian government has with the U.S. government. But that doesn't mean that their own citizenship is a threat. In fact, Trump himself at the U.N. only days earlier said that the Iranian people are not the enemies of the United States. And then five, six days later, he completely bans them from being able to come and visit the U.S., come here to see their relatives, etc. This is once again an effort in which Trump's ego has been put ahead of any consideration to advance American security. Yeah, or his, his uh, what he or his advisors think is his political future, uh, or both. Yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah. makes perfect sense. Dr. Trita Parsi, the founder and president of the National Iranian American Council, NIAC, uh, his new book, Losing an Enemy, NIACouncil.org is the website. You can tweet him at T Parsi, T P A R S I. Dr. Parsi, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Great talk. Thank you. Did you know that the NTSA says that 94% of car crashes are tied to human error and 60% of accidents are due to lane departure and lack of advanced warnings? That's because only about 40% of people apply their brakes in car crashes and have enough advanced warning. Now there's an affordable anti-collision system that can be added to vehicles years 2000 or newer, the RD140 by Safe Drive Systems. The RD140 is a front anti-collision radar and lane departure system that works at night and in all weather conditions. It prevents up to 90% of potential injury causing or fatal car accidents. It's like having an extra set of eyes in hard to navigate conditions and when drivers are distracted. It alerts the driver with an audio and visual signal when they're too close to the vehicle in front or when deviating from their lane. It gives up to five extra seconds of reaction time and that's great for seniors and teens and right, frankly for everybody. Go to safedrivingsystems.com to find out how to add the RD140 to your car. Use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to receive free installation by a professional technician at your home or office. It's currently available in a limited number of states, so go to safedrivesystems.com and use the code T-H-O-M for free installation. Go to safedrivesystems.com today. And welcome back to the program. I'm very, very pleased to have in the studio with me Professor Peter, Peter Wadhams, uh, Professor Emeritus of Ocean Physics, the head of the Polar Ocean Physics Group at the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics at the University of Cambridge, UK, the author of the new book, A Farewell to Ice. May I, may I wave that book around here? Um, I don't think that we have a graphic of it. We probably should get one. But the book is A Farewell to Ice, A Report from the Arctic by uh, Professor Peter Wadhams. And uh, his website, uh, cam.ac.uk, and you can tweet him at Peter Wadhams. It's W-A-D-H-A-M-S, Dr. Wadhams. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure or, to be Or welcome here. back to the program. It's been a few years, or it's been a while since you've been on this radio show with us, but we're yes. so pleased to have you. So um, uh, your area of expertise is ice in general, the Arctic ice, uh, Antarctic ice, well, you know, what... Uh, well, it, it's sea ice. That's ice which grows in the ocean, uh, in the Arctic and the Antarctic. That's been my okay. stamping ground. Yeah. So what is the situation right now with uh, sea ice around the world? You, you, the title of Farewell to Ice, uh, you know, uh, sort of a variation on Hemingway or, or not? Well, that's how I stole the title, but but it is true. Um, 
there is a, a disappearance of sea ice going on in the Arctic, a very rapid one. Um, certainly in the summer, we're going to see very soon a time when during the summer there's no ice at all. And even in the winter, the boundaries of the ice are shrinking quite fast. In the Antarctic, the ice is holding up at the moment, but it has started to retreat, even though uh, until recently it was um, slightly expanding. Now it's, it's shrinking again. And then the uh, I, the third one that people usually mention in tones of you know awe or oh my god is the Greenland ice sheet. Now is that in your ballywick? Is that because that's not technically sea ice; it's land ice. But uh, well, we do look at that because um, you can very accurately measure how rapidly this, the Greenland ice sheet is disappearing now, because there's a satellite called Grace which, which uh, uses gravity to measure how much stuff is underneath it as it passes over the planet. And uh, that means you can carefully, you can accurately measure how much ice is disappearing from Greenland, whereas in the past you had to stick stakes in the ice sheet and kind of guess. But now we know, and, it, and it's actually quite worrying because not only is the Greenland ice sheet retreating, losing mass, but the Antarctic ice sheet has also started to lose mass and that has a, a lot a lot more to lose than the Greenland ice sheet. So we're measuring this essentially with the gravitometers? Uh, yes, it, it's two, um, two gravity satellites flying very close together. So when they fly over the continent of Greenland, the first one is drawn, its orbit is slightly changed by coming across the big mass of ice underneath it, and that alters the distance between the satellites, which can be measured very accurately, and that's a measure then of, of how much mass there is underneath you. That is remarkable. It's a, mar a marvelous system, yes. Yeah. So uh, why should we care? What is, what is the message that the average person needs to hear about why this loss of ice around the world is uh, consequential? Well, the, the biggest thing is, is the serious feedbacks that occur when the sea ice retreats. And, then, and these feedbacks are actually more serious than the retreat of the sea ice in the first place. One of them is the the fact that the albedo of the Earth is reduced by the fact that you're replacing a lot of white stuff, that's the snow and ice, by dark stuff, which is open ocean or bare tundra. Now, albedo is the reflectivity of the Earth that, that bounces the, the solar radiation back out into the... Uh, into the universe rather than keeping it trapped here. Yes, it's, it's the fraction of radiation that's um, reflected immediately back into space. And um, one of the most powerful forces keeping us cool was actually the vast expanse of snow and ice. But the, not only is the sea ice retreating, but the snow line is also retreating. And both of those together are having an albedo effect, which is um, adding about 50% to the effect of global warming. In other words, if you, you add some CO2 to the atmosphere, it achieves 50% more effect than, than if the ice stayed put. Um, so it's, it's a quite a big accelerator. Five zero percent. Yes. In, in, in other words, if we thought that taking carbon dioxide from 350 parts per million to 400 parts per million would have X effect, it will actually have X times two effect because it will reduce the albedo, the, the reflectivity of the planet, um, 
consequential? Is there a linear relationship um, between the two? Or? It's about X times one and a half. In other words, if you, you add uh, two molecules of CO2 to the atmosphere from your car exhaust, right. it's the same as adding three because of this extra albedo effect. And that's just the albedo effect alone. There are other feedbacks as well that, that uh, accelerate global warming. Well, I understand we, we, we talked to Jason Box a while ago, who does a lot of work on the Greenland ice sheet. And, uh, and he was talking about how the white snow is not white anymore. It's covered with soot. Um, now, this is not a new thing. This comes along with the Industrial Revolution in the last 150 years or so, but it's gotten radically worse, apparently, in the last few decades. Uh, is that ha having a measurable impact on all of this? Uh, it is, yes, but it seems to be less than the, the direct impact of the ice and snow retreat. That, that seems to be the worst. And that's something that is, in theory, reversible. If, if the climate got cooler, we would get snow and ice back again. Uh, but the thing that seems to be irreversible is sea level rise, because that's really, most of it is now due to the melt of the Greenland ice sheet and the beginning of the Antarctic ice sheet. And that just goes ahead in one direction. It's not going to be reversible at all, because um, it... it it's it's like turning a super tanker in 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 a short distance, so that's going to mean that the the acceleration of sea level rise that we're suffering from will just go on and on, and we there's nothing much that we can do in reducing carbon emissions that's going to affect sea level rise. We can affect global temperatures, we can affect um, uh, albedo change, but we can't really do anything about. Sea level rise. So you're saying we've passed a tipping point on this? Yes, we have, and we just have to accept the sea level rise. When did we? Happening. When did we realize we had passed that tipping point? Well, we, well, we, meaning most of the people in the world, haven't realized it. I mean, it's still right. you're not allowed to talk about sea level rise. I think in the state of Carolina or Florida, <laughs> <laughs> certainly not Florida, <laughs> but it's still there, and uh, it, it's it's it's. It's accelerating in an exponential way. And, of course, it was said about exponentials is that when you're on an exponential curve, you look behind you and it's flat and nothing has happened. You look ahead of you and it's incredibly steep. So that's what we're on. We're, we're on a curve where we think that things are going gently because we look behind us at the past. But looking forward things are going to be going much more rapidly. Well, one of your colleagues, and, and uh, I... You and I uh, met and talked on camera at Scripps Institute, uh, what, maybe three months ago, thereabouts, uh, for this uh, documentary that we're doing with uh, uh, Leo DiCaprio and Lila Connors and whatnot. It's not, it's not all that public yet, so I can't get into more details than that. But, but you and I were talking, and, and, and I met one of your colleagues, and uh, he was recently quoted, I believe it was the same fellow, as saying that he felt that there was a 1 in 20 chance that by the year 2100, the human race could be extinct as a result of global warming. Uh, that's pretty damn alarming. Is, is that one man's opinion, or is that a part of a growing consensus? Well, I think at this moment it's one man's opinion, but um, to say 1 in 20 means somehow he's done some risk analysis. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the troubles with climate change is that nobody does risk analysis. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which 
supposedly represents and gives us information about how fast global change is happening, they don't express it in the form of, a, of risk factors. They just say there's a moderate probability that this will happen, there's a high probability that that will happen. But they don't assess the risk. And you can assess risk these days, but they just don't do it. Um, for instance, one of the risks that I think is quite serious and hasn't been assessed is the risk that we'll have a big methane outbreak from offshore waters in the Arctic because um, the offshore permafrost, which holds that methane back, is melting. Now, that risk is something that could, if it, if it really happens, give us um, maybe half a degree or more of warming immediately. So we could have a sudden step upwards in our global warming that would be pretty catastrophic. Um, but you have to look at what's the probability that this will happen, what are the processes going on, what is the risk involved, and if, if the risk is severe, then we should be worried about it. But nobody does that kind of risk analysis. I think that should be the way forward. Is that because of the consensus process? Because if 100% of all the scientists in the, in the, uh, in, 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 don't agree that they don't publish the results? Yes, it's something like that. I mean, certainly the approach of IPCC is to sometimes to play down um, the seriousness of certain things like methane emissions um, because they feel people will be really worried about it and they haven't got all the facts clearly out right yet. But even without knowing all the facts, you can still do a risk analysis looking at the probability of different outcomes and that would finger things that that maybe we ought to be deeply concerned about, but at the moment we're not. And then one of those would be a methane outbreak. What are some of the others? Well, um, some of the others would be um, the risk of of a kind of runaway, some kind of runaway warming, where the um, effect of the the albedo change then has further uh, knock on effects on 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 other changes in, in, in the atmosphere and will give you something like a, not quite as bad as the planet Venus, but, but more of a runaway system whereby the, the feedbacks give you warming without you doing anything. Right. You can have a, Stephen Hawking has specifically mentioned, evoked Venus. Uh, you know, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. We're talking with Dr. Peter Wadhams. Professor Peter Wadhams, uh, Emeritus Professor of Ocean Physics and the author of a new book, A Farewell to Ice. And welcome back. Uh, Professor Wadhams is still with us. Um, you were talking about uh, methane as one of the possible things that the IPCC is not seriously considering. Um, another uh, rat, you know, basically some sort of a black swan event, something that we haven't been able to quantify or anticipate, but that might start start us rolling down. Do you see any good news? Um, well, I'm trying to think of some. Um, well, the I guess in, in my book, um, I try to end on a on a positive note. And I think the, the, the good news, of course, is that we know what is causing climate change. Um, it's not a, a Chinese hoax. It's it's carbon dioxide, mainly, that we are putting into the atmosphere. Now, if we if we're if we're putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and causing climate change, we could, in principle, take it out. 
and that would cure climate change. It's the most immediate way of curing climate change and ensuring we have a future is to find a way of taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and then we uh, we we we're sort of saved in the, the but um that has and that can be done there are there are methods being developed that uh, run air where you can run air over absorptive chemicals and uh, produce and actually get rid of carbon dioxide the trouble is it's very expensive and it's not worth doing at the present cost but when you look at how if you apply enough technology costs come down and think for instance about solar power which is now come down in cost by 99 percent relative to to five or ten years ago which means it's now becoming pretty much the cheapest form of energy so if you can do that by putting in enough research and technology um, and taking it seriously enough i'm sure that the cost of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere will go down to the point where it's economically viable. Be a Moore's law for decarbonization. Well, yes, maybe not, <laughs> maybe not quite that extreme, but certainly it will come down. And, and calculations are if it comes down to about $40 a tonne, then it's worth doing because the detrimental effects of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere amount to about $40. What is the expense right now? I know Lila shot some um, uh, in, I, I think it was in Germany, it might have been in Finland or Denmark, uh, they look like washing machines that were stacked above, you know, mm. three or four high and 20 long, and they were blowing air through and they're sucking out the CO2. What, is, what does that cost? Well, at the moment, it's about $100 a tonne, which is not that, that high. I mean, it's only two and a half times what we need to get to. And so um, if we really took the problem seriously and made it the, the highest priority in research and development of anything because it's the thing that's going to save the planet or not then then I'm sure we could get the cost down because we could find new new technologies new new chemical reactions that will be more efficient and I'm sure the cost will come down and when it does uh well, of course we then have to apply it we have to on a governmental scale spend enough money to build enough systems to do it uh, which, which is not, it's not a foregone conclusion that we do that, but we should, and uh, if we do, we can save ourselves. Because we're not, we're not inevitably doomed because we, we fail to reduce our carbon emissions. We, we have the option of using our science and technology to take carbon out of the atmosphere. Let us hope so. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Professor Peter Wadhams is here with us, Emeritus Professor of Ocean Physics uh, with the and former head of the, or current head, correct me if I'm wrong, of the Polar Ocean Physics Group of the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics at the University of Cambridge, UK, and author of the brilliant new book, A Farewell to Ice, a report from the Arctic. Cam.ac.uk is the website. Uh, you can tweet him at Peter Wadhams, W-A-D-H-A-M-S, and uh, the book of Farewell to Ice. Dr. Wadhams, we, we hear all this conversation about cataclysmic, catastrophic, troublesome, uh, you know, uh, just this whole spectrum of adjectives that describe what arguably could be anything from a more violent than normal thunderstorm to the death of all life on Earth, right? 
But very rarely are these terms associated with actual imaginable outcomes. And so I think they just kind of fly over the heads of most people. They're, they're words that many scientists know exactly what they mean, but in general, they don't. Um, are we looking at levels at, at, the current, at the current warming that we're experiencing right now, if we don't do something really substantial to make changes? And I realize that there are positive changes in happening, but not at the rate that everybody says needs to happen. Are we looking at something that is a challenge for us, you know, it's like the million farmers in Syria who lost their farms, and so they ended up in Damascus, which arguably led to that civil war. Uh, and in fact, I think you could argue that all across the the, uh, the Arab area, that that whole arc, you know, is experiencing global warming in ways that are destructive. Um, we know the Bangladesh; there's several hundred million now climate refugees coming out of South Asia. Um, these things for a wealthy nation like the United States, uh, we would say, oh, you know, it's an annoyance, but you know, we used to have famines in Ethiopia. We've always had these disasters. So is it in that category or is it more in the, this is actually going to radically change the way you're, you live your life. Even if you live in the United States, you know, you think you're insulated from this, or is this like literally your grandchildren may not make it. I mean, where, where are, what are the realities here and how do we assign probabilities to these? Well, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I think it's it's more a question of radical changes in the way we live, live our lives combined with fairly disastrous consequences in poorer countries. And um, But it's a, a good point because although many people prophesy that we're doomed if we continue along the present course and, and emit too much carbon dioxide... Um, they don't say how we're doomed and it's important to know what's going to happen first and where we can detect radical changes that are... Are you able to stick around for another mm -hmm. 10 minutes or so? Yes. Mm -hmm. I, I would love to get that step-by-step that, uh, -step scenario from you, if you may. We have to take a six-minute break here. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. One, uh, in my opinion, one of the most brilliant climate scientists on Earth is in the studio with me. I'm so happy to have Professor Peter Wadhams, his new book, A Farewell to Ice. We'll be back. When was the last time you looked forward to sitting at your desk all day? Since getting my new X chair, not only am I enjoying the time spent at my desk much more than ever, but I can't believe how much more productive I'm being. My X chair is unbelievably stylish. And thanks to all the ways that you can personalize it, it literally molds itself to my body. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. And because I don't need to have to keep taking breaks or to stretch my back, I'm getting more done in a day than ever before. If you spend a lot of time in your office chair every day, then you need to try the X chair. In fact, here's a terrific deal just for you, my listeners. The listeners of X chair want you to feel the X chair difference for yourself. So if you go to xchairtom.com right now, that's the letter X, the word chair, Tom, T-H-O-M.com. Not only will they knock $100 off the price, they'll even throw in a free footrest if you use the promo code Tom. Just go to xchairtom.com, xchairtom.com right now. I love my X-Chair, and you will too. So check out xchairtom.com right now. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you in the studio with us, Professor Peter Wadhams, the Emeritus Professor of Ocean Physics, head of the Polar Institute, uh, Polar Ocean Physics Group at the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics at the University of Cambridge in the UK. 
And his new book, A Farewell to Ice, a report from the Arctic, now available in paperback in the United States, just out. A really good read. Uh, Professor Wadhams, thank you for sticking around. Thank you. We were, t we were talking about this spectrum of things that we can expect in terms of the quality and nature of our lives and our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives. Can you make that real for us? Uh, yes, it's a question of how will things change. And uh, it's rather like dealing with a great big ball of string and you're trying to find an end. Where do you start trying to untangle things? And I can think of a couple of ways in. The first would be if um, weather extremes are due to sea ice retreat and warming of the Arctic, as there's a lot of evidence that they are, then the weather extremes combined with uh, general warming are causing a real problem for food production in mid-northern latitudes, which is where most food is grown. So we're going to have food shortages getting worse and worse, even as the world's population is increasing. Now, that, that has already had some major impacts. For instance, there's a lot of evidence that the Arab Spring was due to the fact, partly to the fact, that a lot of unemployed young people living in third world cities found that the cost of food was going way up and they couldn't afford to, to, to eat. Um, and, that, and they don't just lie down and die, they revolt. So you can have the, the problem of, of weather extremes could, could lead to social unrest and warfare. So you can have famine um, and warfare arising. You, don't, you, you can't predict what, what, will ha what unrest and what war warfare will happen, but something will, because uh, if you're inflicting very high food prices on poor people, they don't just sit there and take it. Uh, another way in is to think about, say, sea level rise. And if sea level rise goes at the rate that's predicted, which is now that it's going to be certainly a lot more than a metre this century, maybe two or three metres, that's going to make, within a few years or a few decades, a lot of cities uninhabitable, like Miami and a, a, a lot of Venice. Uh, a lot of cities are most, in fact, of the leading world cities are seaports, and that means they're very vulnerable. So as sea level rises, you can have a huge economic impact on the rich world because their, their prized cities with their highest priced real estate being by the sea are going to have to be abandoned. And of course, the effect on the third world is much worse because you have countries like Bangladesh, which are very low lying, uh, very densely populated, people can't move away from the coast because there's nowhere to move to. So you can expect um, a lot of additional flooding and huge amounts of loss of life in, in the third world. And in the first world, the rich world, you can expect economic crisis due to major cities having to be abandoned and being unable to afford to, to maintain the flood defences which are needed. So if you start with sea level rise, you end up with economic problems in the, in the first world and catastrophic losses in, in the third world. If you start off with, with um, weather changes, you end up with food, a food crisis. Uh, if you start off with um, a methane outbreak, then you're going to get a rapid warming and the impact of that will be on on everything related to both to food production and to water supply, 
everything that you need to live. So predicting how the catastrophe or how the problem will unfold is really difficult. And I don't think people have done it. They tend to think we're doomed and not think, how is this going to work itself out? What's going to happen first? How can we try to minimise the impact by by devoting our attention to the, the crisis that's going to hit first before the the final the final one where everything goes. Sure. Well, just to make it very local and use a couple of examples, we're here in Washington, D.C. We're about 100 miles, I think, from the sea. But there's a pretty big river, the Potomac, that heads right out there. I think we're at an elevation of around two to 300 feet above sea level. Um, I have a, a home in Portland, Oregon, which is near the, the Columbia River, which is a couple hundred feet above sea level. It's 100 miles out to the ocean. Is... At that level, you know, are the inland cities uh, up upriver in the Mississippi? Are they going to? Is it going to be a situation as the sea levels rise, where where the brackish areas extend, you know, five miles, ten miles, thirty miles up into the rivers, whereas right now they might just be a, a mile or so? Or is it that the resistance to the flow of water coming down into the ocean, because the ocean levels are higher, is going to slow the flow of these rivers and cause them to get larger and overflow their banks more often? Mm. How does this all work? I'm, I'm not familiar with the fluid hydraulics of it all. Well, I think we, we don't, don't really know about, about rivers, what's, because it depends whether rainfall is going to increase or decrease as climate changes. And it means in some places it's going to increase and some going to decrease. For, for instance, we there's a big loss of water from uh, the Tibetan plateau because the, 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 the glaciers there and the ice is melting earlier and you're not getting water flowing through rivers there to irrigate um, land at a slightly lower level. Same in Bolivia. So there's where you depend on snow melt in spring and there isn't the snow there to start with, then you have less river flow and you have a, a big problem for growing crops. So some places the extra river flow is going to cause floods. Other places, you're not going to have enough river flow to, to give you the irrigation you need. So it's impossible to generalize. Yes, you can't generalize. You have to look on, look globally on a case, sort of case-by-case case basis, which is, is not really being done very much. And everybody's too concerned with Armageddon rather than how it's going to unfold. Right. Or, you know, up to something short of that. There was a lot of discussion around the year 2000. I, I think it was when Francis Fukuyama's book, uh, the, the End of History and the Last Man, was published. And, um, there were a number of books about kind of this is the end of civilization as we know it in a positive way. Like, you know, we're going to take the next leap. This is the new, you know, the information age is the equivalent of the Enlightenment in the 1700s. Um, and, uh, you know, some of it turned out to be just kind of fantastic thinking, uh, you know, uh, some of it was used to justify the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, oddly enough. I mean, these were also the neoconservative thinkers. If only we can make the whole world just like us, everything will be wonderful. Um, but they, they, they dealt with civilizational changes. I think that you could argue that, you know, ISIS taking over a city in Iraq is a radical civilizational change. I mean, it's the destruction of a civilization. It's the destruction of a culture. They, they may get it back. There may be pieces coming back. But these are, we're talking fundamental core 
civilizational changes, the breakdown in, the, in Syria, for example. Mm. Are, are we looking at the destruction of what we call modern civilization worldwide? Well, I think we are looking at a breakdown in many places. Um, in fact, surprisingly, in places that we think of as, as being the most stable countries there are, like Britain and America, seem to be uh, uh, look having a kind of a mental breakdowns at the moment. But but there are the 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 break there's breakdowns going on because of these additional environmental pressures on 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 countries that are unable to withstand much of a change and um it will inevitably be a breakdown rather than a building up i think there was uh, einstein said that uh, he didn't know when he was asked about the third world war he said well he didn't know about that but he knows he knew that the fourth world war would be fought with bows and arrows that in other words any that, that everything will break down um and nothing you won't you won't this was his response to the atomic bomb. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so to what extent is climate change an atomic bomb for us? I mean, how how inevitable, how unstoppable, how how rapid can we start to see things? I mean, I I remember just ten years ago, people were talking about, ah, you don't have to worry about this. It's going to be twenty one hundred. Now people are going, maybe ten years from now. It's like, you know, how rapidly are things going on? Well, it is fast because everything is increasing exponentially. Even the amount of carbon dioxide we put into the atmosphere is increasing exponentially still, despite mm. everything that, that all the politicians have said about reducing carbon emissions. We, we don't even just have to reduce them. We have to stop them because the carbon stays in the atmosphere so long and there's such a, um, a, a flywheel effect that the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere now will keep building up temperatures even if we stop emitting so we're but we're stuck with exponential growth in carbon dioxide emissions exponential growth in nearly everything and those are things which as you say we don't notice until they hit us um that an exponential growth of anything doesn't look very much at first but then it builds up quite suddenly and and suddenly you're kind of fleeing for your life. Well, this is how cancers and infections work. Mm. You know, you, you you get this this what looks like linear growth, and then suddenly it goes exponential. It it, it goes into that, you know, and and that's that in in biology they refer to it as amplification. And, you know, once the bacteria starts amplifying like that, the organism's doomed. I mean, that's uh, well, I believe it. That. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Peter Wadhams, you need to read the book. It's called A Farewell to Ice, a report from the Arctic. Professor Peter Wadhams, W-A-D-H-A-M-S. You can tweet him at Peter Wadhams on the website camcam.ac.uk. Professor, thank you. Great having you. We'll be back. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and Robert in Mission Viejo, California. Hey, Robert, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning, Tom. You know, I've been calling uh, Puerto Rico... Trump's Katrina, mm-hmm. because he has done nothing there. He's off here doing all this Twitter ridiculous crap. Well, millions of people are without water, without electricity. You know, there are going to be thousands of people die there as a result of their infrastructure being destroyed. And here's Trump not going there, not paying any attention to it. Well, it is Katrina. an island, uh, even though it's a U.S. protectorate, a U.S. territory. It is an island filled with largely brown people who speak Spanish. 
So should it surprise us that our uh, that, that Donald Trump has little interest in it? No, not at all. And you know what? I've, I was thinking that there's a difference between what's normal and what's right. Yeah. And I think what's normal in America for a fairly substantial portion of our population is racism, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, white supremacism. And male supremacy, and, yes. And male supremacy, yeah. yeah. And Trump, and the, and the question we have is, are we going to reject or embrace, right? And we were on our way to rejecting, and then Trump comes along and grabs it with both hands. Right. And that's why people said, oh, he hears me, he speaks for me, because he was he tapped into that nascent strain. And we, on the, on the progressive side, said things like, she's a flawed candidate, or I'm going to hold my nose and vote for her, which gave credibility to the attack from the other side. Well, not all of us were saying that, but, but uh, and, and again, I don't, I don't see any value in relitigating the election. <coughs> Excuse me. But, you know, what Donald Trump is doing um, at so many levels, it seems like to me it's all of one it's all of one cloth. Basically, he's shouting out to the frightened white supremacists who who are seeing our nation become a majority minority country right in front of their eyes and don't know what to do about it and are freaked out about it. And 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 then you've got, you know, an entire uh, uh, media operation from Fox so-called news to right wing hate radio to a whole bunch of different right wing websites um, and now, you know, even a, a broadcasting a television uh, station chain nationwide uh, echoing these kinds of messages. It's just it's not useful for the United States, in my opinion. Thanks for the call. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between, plus the best of the rest of the news. And don't forget, democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.